Welcome to the Chip and Gary Tennis Show again, and I've got an esteemed tennis player here today, a former Clemson All-American, uh, Todd Watkins. And Todd played tennis at uh, Clemson for Chuck Creasy in the mid-80s, I believe it was, and he probably was very happy watching the football game last night where hmm. Clemson just dominated Texas A&M. And, uh, Todd, welcome to the show, and was Clemson... Uh, you know, they won a championship with Danny Ford. Were they a football power when you were in school there? Uh, we were pretty good, but we weren't nearly as good as we are now. Uh-huh. Uh, now we we dominate the national level, but we were pretty mediocre back then, to be honest with you. You know, it's interesting. We talked a little bit before the show, and you grew up in St. Pete, Clearwater area, and uh, had... Uh, a little run-in with a, a fellow from my hometown, Don Kaiser, from Louisville, Kentucky, that was instrumental in your upbringing. And um, in Florida, you know, you were an All-American at the college level. And, you know, when I kind of saw you hitting the ball, I, I, I knew, you know, when guys are, are tennis players. I knew you were a tennis player, but I didn't understand how well you had done. But how did it all start for you? Well, my... <clears throat> My dad started playing tennis when I was really young, uh, when I was seven, but um, and that was in Columbus, Ohio, at Northam Park. So I played, started playing there, but I didn't really like it, and uh, but kind of got the bug. And briefly lived in Noblesville, Indiana, and then when I was 13, we moved to, to uh, Seminole, Florida, Clearwater area, and I was just addicted. I played every day, all day after school. I did the courts for Don. Uh, morning and night they were clay courts so I swept them in the morning and on the weekends and swept them every night during the week and how old were you at that time I was 13 so, so we, you're talking about Don Kaiser who was probably in his 60s at the time yes. or or more even yes. probably in the 60s Correct. But a great tennis player that uh, was a, actually a top 20 in the U.S. tennis player at one time right uh, and from my hometown of Louisville and Don owned the club and afforded me the opportunity since I worked there to play there and have the opportunity he what was a, the name of that club uh the name of the club was Shipwatch Country Indian in Springs Country Club, later turned into Shipwatch, which is still there today. And there was a pro there by the name, an Indian guy by the name of uh, Krishnan Anandan, who ran the junior program and has been teaching for many, many years. So I started with him and just played every day and got to be, you know, got beat 6-0, first round of my first tournament in the 14s and uh, picked myself up and started playing. And by the time I left and was in the uh, boys 18s, I was ranked number nine my last two years. And they only allowed seven, the top seven guys to go to nationals, so I never really got to compete at nationals. I got lucky and got into the national clay courts and had the number one seed down a set and a break and wound up giving it back to them. And, and uh, so that was pretty much my junior career. I enjoyed playing in Florida. So you had a shot against the number one seed and didn't get it, get there at the end, done, but right. uh, I wonder if he was a uh, California hardcore guy where you had been playing on the clay down there in St. Pete and kind of used to the surface. And, you know, the one thing that I've noticed about your game, and I think part of that's got to do with the fact that you're you're younger than I am, but uh, you, it seems like uh, you have a lot of top spin or at least a moderate amount of topspin on your shots comparatively to the guys in the 70s and guys that hit it flatter. Is that something that you kind of saw coming on? I mean, we've talked about Nadal, who's, 
you know, at the extreme end of the top spin. But right. uh, what, do you, what do you think? When did that start changing? You know, it's interesting because I, I, I teach that. But uh, and you can tell me if you agree or disagree with this guy. But, you know, prior to Jimmy Connors, I would say, you had more of a high to low motion at the ball. You didn't see much top spin. You saw a lot of flat and cut and underspin. And then Jimmy comes along and he starts swinging from low to high, but very flat. And then Bjorn comes along and starts hitting top spin. And today, and ever since Jimmy, today it's a combination of Jimmy and Bjorn. I think if you really look closely at it, in my opinion. And uh, so we all try to emulate that. The real question is how much flat, how much spin do you put on the ball in the right situation? And and uh, that's kind of dictated by score and how much risk you feel like taking. What's interesting is watching how hard these guys swing at the ball and how much spin they put on the ball and still achieve achieve the pace like Rafa. Very impressive. What about the what about the strings today? What do you know about that? I, I, I hear so much and I've been convinced by my friends who are very good pros talking about how big a difference the strings have made and you hear it on the telecast as well. I think this, the the invention of the polyester the poly strings has have made a difference for guys like Rafa and the and the ground strokers with the big ground strokes and and the heavy upward swings. I think if Jim Curry would have had that type of string back then, he would have he would have enjoyed the game a lot more. But for Roger, a player like that, the string's not going to help him very much. What's the difference in the string? Well, you can now? string that string a lot lower and get and get a lot more power, and then that that's going to give you a tremendous amount of spin. And so I think Rafa strings those his rackets in the in the mid fifties to low fifties with that string, which is kind of unheard of. When I was in college, I was I was stringing rackets for Craig Boynton, and he was playing with the Prince. Uh, Boy, there was a good player, Prince, Craig, yeah, Boynton. Craig Boynton. Craig was Craig went to Clemson, uh-huh. took a lot of my money on the poker table. <laughs> playing I did Craig. Um, Greg had played with the Prince Pro or the Prince Graphite 110 and would string them at 80 pounds. Yeah, that's the way they did it yes. back then. It and, was like a right. 75. Well, you know, Borg strung 72, 75 pounds, and that was a little and 80 little square. Like 85 inch square, right? Exactly. So, as a matter of fact, one time um, at the Orange Bowl, I was practicing on the next court to him, and he was practicing with Manuel Arantes, who was not a junior at the time, but he was practicing with him. And he hit a ball. And that racket shattered into about 30 pieces. And he was just holding that Donne wood stick, you know, with, you know, mango. How could that racket and take that tension? You just want I don't know. Yeah, I'm right. sure he just exploded those right. rackets all the time. Right. Crazy. But, but, uh, but it's almost, it's the opposite now. It's switched. So this string's a little more elastic, and they can string it looser, and you can still get the effect of it grabbing the ball. And so for guys like Roth and the big ground strokers, if they got the right surface with the with the slow hard courts and the and the clay, as we know, Ralph is impossible to beat on clay. Yeah, and uh, what 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 kind of gauge do you think they're using on those strings? Because seventeen was like the highest in my day. Right, uh, it's super thin, but gut. But you're you're talking about eighteen, nineteen gauge strings. You know, they, they make it in nineteen and even twenty gauge, which you would never. Do have they to really? Play. The pros would never play with that. They would break it too fast. But it's great for the average club player, the three zero and the three five, who don't break much strings. And probably don't hit as much top spin. Correct. To cause nice friction. Your arm. It, it, it'll, mm-hmm. it'll keep you from getting tennis elbow, and you can string it at a nice low tension and still control the ball. So uh, it's it's really a, it's really a great. It doesn't get enough credit, but uh, that string has kind of revolutionized the game because once they became out with the graphite rackets, the rackets really haven't changed much, I don't think, over the last 20, 25 years. 
of you? I, I don't think so. I think I think paint them a different color. I think it's like you say the string, and I was not a believer in it. But you know, for the listeners, the the thing that breaks a, a tennis racket string is the coefficient of friction where the strings move. So it's not how hard these guys are hitting the ball. So for your club player that's not hitting that heavy top like a Nadal or even like a, a pro player, you know, you're really not going to break strings. Uh, and it's a matter of they go soft, and and th- then that part, I guess there's a little debate on how often you really, as a three-five player, really need to change right. your strings. I I never knew how much of that was just kind of a marketing ploy. Most you know. of it is. I mean, I always tell my my people, I go, the only time you restring your racket is if it's lost attention, which it rarely ever does, and or if you break your string. Right. Other than that, you don't need to restring your racket. Yeah, although you will you will hear a different thing talking like you don't know what you're talking about if you're in a store and say, hey, you right. got to, they, they had some kind of norm where you you got to string your racket months. every however many times you play right, or right. something like that. Right. So listen, you went down to Clemson and that was kind of a different thing once you yeah, so, got down there. So I, I, coming out, I was the best player, junior player coming out of the St. Petersburg, Tampa area in 1986. And I had a offer for a full scholarship at South Florida and Tampa, which I verbally committed to. But then uh, one of the guys I wound up, wound up practicing with growing up was on the team at Clemson and somehow made arrangements for me to go visit. At now, the who was set. that? His name was Jeff Lehman. Uh-huh. And uh, he was he didn't play on the team. He was kind of lower on the team. Uh, so anyway, I went to visit, and Chuck said, I can get you in school in, in the fall if you want to come, and I'll give you – $500 in books, and you can work, come as a walk-on and work your way up to a scholarship. We'll see how you do. And uh, so I felt that that tennis program was a lot better for some reason than the one at South Florida. I guess so, because you had a full scholarship right. in South Florida, $500. Right. Your dad probably didn't like that as much. <laughs> My mom figured out a way with loans and grants and all oh, that did to she? get it done. So she was the greatest, um, and she made it happen. So... Uh, an interesting thing, when you're on Chuck Creasy's team, I go in as a freshman, and they have a thing called Morning Madness for all freshmen and newcomers. So you, the first two weeks, you had a week of school to get adjusted, and practice didn't start for you know, usually three weeks or so. So the, those two weeks in between, for all newcomers, you had to meet at the track every morning at 6 o'clock, and you had to run 800s, 400s, a mile, maybe some one day, one morning we ran 8 miles. And uh, for two really weeks, and lots just tough, right? And to and you could either quit or keep going, and anybody could try out for the team, which was kind of a what I thought was kind of a weird thing, a little bit of a pain. But he allowed anybody to be on the team, and um, if you if you decided you could make it through morning madness, and then once you did that, in order to actually be on the team.